And I'm Kitty Amen. And this is the last episode of the premiere season of the Drinking Like Ladies podcast. We recorded this episode back in May with the incredible Cynthia Mallorin, aka DJ Cherish the Love. For us, she's the perfect person to end our season and transition from shows about coping with the realities of COVID-19 to our original intent of interviewing amazing women doing super cool things. You've probably noticed it's been several weeks since we released our last episode. In the week after we recorded with Cynthia, George Floyd was murdered by police, and in our city and cities across the country, people took to the streets in support of Black Lives Matter. For us, it was important to be in this moment, to listen, to witness, and to engage. This is a moment of intense pain for our country, but also a moment that we believe could be transformative and lead to a path of healing that we desperately need. We started working on this podcast in January, recording many fun and fantastic interviews. But none of them felt appropriate to air after the outbreak of COVID. In the case of this chat with Cynthia, although it was recorded prior to the death of George Floyd, we felt her message was as or more important than when we recorded it. Here's our interview with Cynthia Mallorin, a.k.a. DJ Cherish the Love. All right. We are so thrilled to have DJ Cherish the Love with us today, a.k.a. Cynthia Mallorin. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so very excited. We've been looking forward to this all week. Oh, my God. It's excited. <laughs> where are you right now? Where are you recording from? Because it could be anywhere in the world, as we know. <laughs> I am recording from Catlandia. Oh, right. This is a podcast. Okay, so I said that because behind me is a huge picture of a cat. Uh, <laughs> I'm in the East Village, New York City. Well, for those who are listening who may not know about you, and your bio is so long, and you do so many things and are going to get into all of them, but if you were going to give somebody the elevator pitch about your life, what would it be? Oh, my God. Why would you ask me that? (laughs) We have to start somewhere. (laughs) Um, No, the only reason why I particularly today, find that such a hard thing to answer is because at midnight, I started DJing for Hudson Gives. It's like a giving 24 hours uh, event that we're doing and DJing with all of them and uh, raised over $100,000. That's amazing. I feel like I next leveled my entire career in a way because now I feel like I want to do fundraising work in a way that's different from before. Like before, when I'd be asked as a professional DJ or public speaker or MC to do fundraising, I always saw it as, okay, I'm donating my time and how can I help you? Now, because of the way we interacted over Zoom and how I saw the live leaderboard updating, it was so exciting. I felt a very different activation or or utilization of DJing for me because this is money. (laughs) money is just that much more exciting (laughs) and and it's helping all these arts organizations and relief organizations and people who need it and small businesses and right now oh my god so to be able to 
do something like we're doing, and it's still going, I still have to DJ in a few hours for part two and then part three later on. And every time I'm doing the DJ set, some money's just pop, 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 and I'm just like, ah! now I want to do DJing for fundraising and not just to feed my superstar ego. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't really. Yeah. I was going to say, that's all of us I'm who know you. Jesus hands up. <laughs> my Jesus DJ hands are up. There. Oh my goodness. I just want to find purpose. Well, I think this is a, would be an interesting segue to talk about your life and your career. Um, I know for me, like it's been hard um, throughout my career because I've always done so many different things, partially because of like always having to make money and look to the gig economy to support myself, right? So for many, many years, I was a waitress, but I was also in publishing and I was also a writer and I was also so like this question of like, what do you do? Like, who are you? Has really frustrated and kind of made me feel stunted throughout my life, um, which you might identify with because I feel like you do so many different things. But I would love to share with our listeners about like the different facets that make up um, I guess your career before COVID and like what you were doing with your time and energy. So we know you're a DJ. Can you tell us about like, um, what were your regular gigs and what kinds of different things you were doing? Um, before March. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I mean, I just through the past 10 years. So when did this whole thing just kind of hit us? It's like March-ish. Just before that hit, I, I was at the height, heights of my DJ career. DJing on TV, DJing for Netflix. I'm in a show that's coming out in a couple of, in a month, I think, which you'll you'll see soon. Traveling the world internationally, DJing international clients. Uh, literally was doubling my rate. Whenever someone came to me and I was like, this was my rate, but I would love this. And they wouldn't push back. And something that women don't do too often and probably should do more, you know, we think about like, oh, but could they afford it? I feel bad. Ah. <laughs> you know, and I just was like, I was like, oh, the budget's not male or female. <laughs> mm, right? <laughs> like, budget's numbers. Oh, uh-huh. let me try this. You know, but obviously I couldn't get to that point until I felt that self-worth. Yeah. Which took 40 something years to get to. So my residencies as a DJ are... Whole Foods New York City and Whole Foods New York City's resident DJ. Like I said, I DJ for Netflix. Um, just so many different shows. I do audience warm up. Uh, I DJ for the MTV Video Music Awards. I DJ for Google. Lots of networks. Food Network. I'm one of their resident DJs. And then I do weddings and also officiate them. We'll talk about that too. <laughs> As I'm thinking about it, I start to realize I think I know how to elevator pitch myself I work with people via music or communication and and that comes in all kinds of flavors but throughout my life it's always been about communicating with people and the irony is I think deep down inside I don't like people oh tell us more about that You all included. No, <laughs> no, I think it's interesting because a lot of bartenders say that. And then you're like, but you're like the best, you know, it's like an interesting thing. So I'd love to hear more about that. <laughs> People in this COVID thing is reminding me that I have fears of people. You know, people can be pretty uh, selfish and inconsiderate and dangerous, but that's not everyone, obviously. So 
in my life when I've stayed in that darker space, I can look back now because I'm old enough now in my mid-40s to see how not far that's gotten me. But then when I stay in the other space and was forced to really examine that because after going through breast cancer, which we'll talk about also, I had to choose which space I was going to be in for me to survive. And it had nothing to do with the world. Then I started to understand very good things about people and so on and just realizing my default shouldn't be people are scary. Obviously, me, like most people, have gone through childhood trauma and didn't start to address it, understand it, recognize it, deal with it until decades later, you know, and, and all kinds of things that you didn't think were trauma. You just thought, that was me growing up. <laughs> then suddenly you're with a therapist that you love, and she goes, well, so when you were going through that abuse, and you're like, no, 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 I wasn't abused. And then you start thinking, holy crap. And then you start understanding these things. So you go through these things and, and you spend like decades of your life to heal from it. And I realized the sooner the better. So I realize now when I look back that my need to just want to get to know all the best people drives me. You know, in my interactions with you and, and we haven't spent a lot of time together, but the time that I've been able to, to be around you and have conversations with you are just times that I look back on and, and really cherish, for lack of a better word, honestly. Ah, um, I like what you did there. Um, and, and I know from like following you on social media and everything that the personal connection that, that, that and, and the joy that you get from like watching people dance when you're DJing and all of these other things, it's, it's really strong. It's really obvious to anybody who's following you on social media. And so, it? That's so good to know. I, mean, I, can, I can't see that. Yeah. You know? Oh, oh my God. I can't it's, step back. It's a huge part of the persona um, that you have. And it's so cool, you know, um, because I think that we're living in this time where we're getting less connected because social media can can isolate us in a lot of ways. And, and our devices are isolating us from one another if we're not using them properly, you know. And so it's always been something that's really cool for me to see in what you do. Thanks for seeing that. <laughs> that that's um, that really helps me understand that I've really been trying to find a balance. I mean, think about, just to begin with, what personality type wants to be hiding out behind a DJ booth to begin with? And in other words, where can I hide, but still kind of be part of the party? Where can I hide and also assert my sense of wanting to control situations? Oh, the DJ booth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, DJ booth is perfect. But that's not what I started. I mean, that's not where I got my... Uh, diplomas or degrees in school. I have uh, graphic design and advertising. What are they called? Pieces of paper and friends. <laughs> <laughs> I was communicating as with people as a visual artist and went to design schools because I just was, first of all, fascinated by, of all things, Kotex maxi pad boxes. I don't know why. <laughs> I was like, was so amazed by package design from that and it's just a box but I remember in my mom's bathroom just being like like that's a drawing of a maxi pad and I just thought that was like so cool that's I went into graphic design to do things like that it's like the blue um, blue like liquid and the commercial oh my god all of it all of it just vectors I mean photoshop 
Ooh. I am a, a master Photoshop retoucher. One of my clients in the past is a New York Fireman's calendar. They used to come to me and say, could you put abs on this guy? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not lying. And that's this real, is that's great. <laughs> um, early mid two thousands, I would get paid seventy five dollars an hour Damn. to put abs on flabs. Okay, <laughs> and I had a very wonderfully lucrative graphic design career in advertising, and one of the major firms I was very unhappy. One of my clients was Philip Morris, and just felt like I'm not a smoker. I don't really feel it, but I'm making these blue beach ads so pretty. And I thought, you know what, I, I, and U.S. Army was a client. I started to learn early, like, that diametrically opposed feeling, like, you feeling a certain way about life and the world and then getting paid to do something that destroys what you feel about. Yeah, that's tough. Your world. Right. It was very tough because it was good money. And I was like, well, you know, this is what I went to school for. But then it dawned on me, like, why don't you design and do art somewhere else? And I said, let me go into children's book publishing. So we're talking late 90s. Oh, that's awesome. 2000s. Yeah. And I was like, children's book publishing is going to be the remedy. Yeah. No, it wasn't. <laughs> still a business. <laughs> still capitalism. No, still cigarettes. <laughs> no, and, and the reason why it was because I had started at the dawn of Pokemon and Powerpuff Girls. And it was all about marketing more than education. So I had everything on my wish list, the office overlooking Central Park, the title, the good pay, all of it. And I remember sitting in my office being so unhappy and then saying, I just wish things were different. And within a week, my appendix burst. Oh my God. And I had Cabrini Medical Center as one of their worst cases of ruptured appendix on file. <laughs> oh, wow. So now I have all this time to rethink what I want to do. And I said, let me freelance and start doing this thing that's coming hot now web design so because everything was on the web and this was just like you know talking with early 2000s and so on just clients left and right and i was a very proud workaholic and because of the internet i could have clients in asia and in la and make a ton of money but sleep three hours a day and was very proud about the growing but knew that i was feeling really sick but i thought it was just stress you know, and I thought success was just about making like good pay and that was it. Didn't think about my health or anything. And at that time I was close to 300 pounds. And I knew that at some point I was going to come to some sort of like major change or like halt because I kept saying like, I just want things to be different. And then in 2008, I was then married to this uh, guy from Sweden and we were in Sweden and we got into this accident uh, going down a hill on a longboard. Of course, I wasn't wearing a helmet, and I sustained a really severe concussion, and my teeth were knocked out. So he saw me hit my head on the road three times, and I sustained a traumatic brain injury and broke my shoulder, broke my knee, tore a hole in my other leg, lost my front teeth. That's why they're so good. They're like sculpted. They are beautiful. You have beautiful teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I noticed that. And, and that's something, you know, let me just wow. say, all my life, I would tell myself, I hate my teeth, I hate my teeth, I hate my teeth. And then here I was suddenly without them. And I was like, I miss my teeth, I miss my teeth. It's the weirdest thing. So I had come back to the States to heal 
but didn't know that I had such a head injury that I was actually like having high function and like amnesia. So I didn't know how to design anymore. I didn't know how to do what I was doing before and was really lost and spending my savings that I was making so much of from the other work Pollock stuff and just didn't know what I was doing. To the point that I didn't even recognize or understand my husband and I filed for a divorce. I was like, he was a stranger to me. And at that point I realized like, okay, I'm starting to have like regular panic attacks because I'm realizing I don't even know like my childhood or understand my family. Like my mom has white hair and no recollection of her with black hair. And if you asked me what grammar school was like, I couldn't tell you because I had post-concussive syndrome, which is something that a lot of people have. They have a concussion and they can experience fog and amnesia from two weeks to two years. And I was lucky to be one of the two-year ones. So in therapy, I started to tell my doctors that like I just, I don't know what to do because I really just literally don't know what to do. So once, so this is 2008 was when this happened. And towards the end of 2008, I was in therapy and so on, trying to figure out like what the heck is going on in my head. And I opened my laptop, which was dusty and I had more than one. And I was like, well, whatever I was doing, I was really good at because I have like three computers here. Outlook Express opens up to 7,998 emails of clients, people, friends, everyone looking for me. And I didn't know that a year had passed. I didn't understand. So this therapy wasn't working for me. And I thought, oh my God, I just don't know what to do. And on my old radio that I used to have comes Paul Anka, I'm a Lonely Boy, that song. I'm just a lonely boy. I'm just a lonely boy. Suddenly I'm thinking of childhood and I realized, oh my God, I have to just listen to music and that's going to help me reconnect. So I would listen to music and literally like just you know, steal music off of Napster and things like that. And then I would offer up playing music and DJing off of iPods and little mixers to cafes in the East Village for a penny. And they were called penny parties. And then eventually someone was like, no, I have to pay you 25 bucks to DJ. And then the 25 became 50, became 125, became 275, became 550, became XYZ, you know, and on and on. And then here I was suddenly becoming a professional DJ. In 2015, I was then diagnosed with breast cancer, pretty aggressive breast cancer, it's triple positive. And I went through chemo and everything, but when I was going through the third part, fourth part of my treatment, after my double mastectomy, no reconstruction, just trying to like get through the whole thing, I become allergic to treatment and they take me off of treatment very abruptly. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, the treatment is called Herceptin. It's pretty special to the point that Ken Burns put out a documentary called Cancer, the King of All Maladies and Herceptin is the second episode. So people who have the type of cancer that I was diagnosed with, which is a fast growing aggressive type, gets on Herceptin and saves their lives, literally. So when I was on it, I kept getting reminded, oh, it's so good that you have this drug. It is 
uh, people who were diagnosed with your cancer 10 years ago aren't alive today because they didn't have this drug. So then here I was suddenly without it because I became allergic. And so they took me off of it and I said to my doctor, uh, so what's the alternative? What's like the Kirkland CVS brand of this? And, and she said, there isn't one. And I was like, what are you talking about? Of course there's a Kirkland brand. <laughs> and she's like, no. So I was like, holy crap. So what do I do? And she tells me, be happy. And immediately I was like, what the fuck did she just say to me? Did she just like tell me, like, where's the drug? Where's the prescription? And I smiled, I was like, <laughs> yeah, thanks. And then on my way home in the Lyft or the Uber, I was pissed. I was like, what kind of doctor is gonna tell you to be happy? And then when I got home, I realized, oh my God, she was right. And it's because I keep trying to, not keep trying, I just naturally, figured out how to see where I can be happy about things. Here I am five years later, no cancer in my scans, none of it, and feeling better and happier than I ever have in my life. So that's like, and through music, my God, I'm still here. So what, what can I do with the rest of my time? So that's how I ended up in this, <laughs> in this. <laughs> Um, helping, helping raise a hundred grand for an organization or 10. <laughs> hey everyone, Misty here. You'll definitely want to follow Cynthia on social media to see all the rad things she's doing. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram at DJ Cherish the Love. That's D-J-C-H-E-R-I-S-H-T-H-E-L-U-V. Also, be sure to check her out doing her thing, DJing on the new Netflix special, Joe Coy and His Elements. Now back to our interview with Cynthia. Well, I, I, you know, the thread that kind of runs through your story is music and healing. And so a lot of, you do a lot of really cool things working with children and all, in all sorts of areas, kind of bringing those together into other communities. And can you share some of those projects that you've done or that you're working on? Yeah, it's really cool. pretty wild where I've taken my DJ gear. I've, I've taken it to orphanages, thrown dance parties in Ecuador and orphanages with the most incredible kids. Oh God, I think about them, we're just like gonna start crying. I'm also a resident DJ at Rose M. Singer Center, which is the women's prison, the single women's prison at Rikers Island. So DJ in there. And it's very interesting because you're not allowed to dance per se. <laughs> you're not allowed to really touch each other and dance. So I would be in my makeshift DJ booth. And by the way, I'm one of the few people who have been able to bring, have been approved to bring in contraband. And what I mean by contraband is literally USB cables because that could kill a person. So I'm allowed to bring power cables, USB cables, things like that, because they've known me and they've worked with me. And uh, when, when I play music, so I like to play not music that people like, which could be like, oh, I like that Drake song, or even people music people love. I love to play music that people miss. And I found that when I play people, when I play music that people miss, they're the ones who come up with best DJ ever. And at Rikers, I would be bringing music that they missed. 
because you know they don't really have a radio or, or so on and I would ask them from week to week you know song requests let me know because we don't have wi-fi in here you know I can't pull it up out of nowhere so you want to tell me and I'll see you in two weeks with this music and we do that and they would dance like women would dance and sit in they'd sit in their chairs and they'd just like you know move their shoulders and stuff like that and one time and I have it framed one of the women came up to me and she gives me a piece of paper it's it's money that she drew with crayon and it was a tip that's amazing and on it it says diva dollars <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. otherwise it would be counterfeiting i framed it it's, it's just over there yeah that's awesome can we use diva dollars in the new earth can that be our new currency? <laughs> hey, you gotta pay me some diva dollars. <laughs> it's gonna be in my invoice. The uh, dollars search. <laughs> One billion diva dollars. That is what I shot. And and I realized that that music in these spaces is oftentimes like where they find their joy. And isn't that true for all of us anyway? It, you know, at, at least those who can receive it. Yeah. And the idea, the idea that like, it's the music that people miss, you know, I think that there's like, it's that feeling of when you're maybe driving or anywhere or the DJ's putting on something that you didn't even, I feel like all the time, I don't realize mm -hmm. there's things that I miss. It makes sense though, right? Just think about it. Like the music that you miss tends to be from like, you know, your early twenties or maybe, eight, you know, when you were around 18, when like everything was potential and like, life wasn't that COVID-y. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or just like even, <laughs> I think it's like, like my brothers, so I have like two much older brothers um, and I just think of things like when I hear things like from the 80s, yeah. like like Rush, like they love like prog rock and like stuff. Like, I just like, I don't know if I'll ever be there for it, but like when I hear like um, oh my that God, Tom yeah, Sawyer yeah. song or whatever, you know, <laughs> such a moment it was such a time and I was so little and they were like my heroes and like whatever you know mullet and just the way you're lining up describing that that is something that is hard to achieve for 90 bucks an hour in a therapist's office and having come to understand what hormones and you know happy hormones and all those hormones have the effect on the body and so on after going through cancer and healing from it, I realized every emotion leaves uh, a lasting imprint on us. So physically speaking, when I was going through adriamycin and cytotoxin chemo, every treatment I would end up with a dark line in my nail from the chemo. And that's common, you can look it up, dark lines in nails. So after weeks, I would have all these little ridges in between nail color and I realized those were the traumas, the impact. And then I realized I'm gonna love losing my hair, which is something women don't say, because I realized in all that long hair was imprints of really tough things that I had gone through. So when I started losing, I said, let me just shed and then just grow a whole new peach head. So and beautiful. Start yeah. over. Yeah. I have said that at different talks with women who were just diagnosed and just dreading the hair thing. And they went from dark feeling about it to looking forward to losing hair. I mean, come on. So I realized like I will just keep sharing that story as much as possible. Cause sometimes that's all it takes one person to give you an example of something 
a little bit lighter in your life. Word? <laughs> really? I'm allowed? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. we get so stuck in our own perspective. And if you start out in the negative, it's hard to pull out of it. And so having somebody come in and be like, wow, that, you know, I can understand that. I, I obviously understand being in that space because, yeah, there's a lot about this that sucks. But I chose to look at it this way and it was really beneficial to me. And I think that sometimes that's all it takes, you know, and for it to really pull us out of like this just tunnel vision that we have in the moment, you know? Absolutely. It's that just stalled or the pattern or the uh, patterning really. And sometimes it just takes a special individual who is able to see something just a little bit differently because they're weird. <laughs> and, then, and then they're able to be like, but what if? You know, but otherwise, just look at white supremacy. Look at, you know, all the all the violent thinking just that's just patterns through generations or the um, Christmas ham story. You know that story? The Christmas ham? I don't know. The Christmas ham story. Okay, it's just so I heard this years ago and I was like, this is the dumbest story ever. And then I heard it again recently and I was like, this is the best story ever. (laughs) So there's like 100 versions of this, but I'm going to tell you one that uh, sticks in my mind. So this young teen, really kind of like mm, attitude-y, questions things, so just kind of like bleh, sour teen. Christmas time is watching her mom prep the Christmas ham and she sees that she cuts the ends off. And she's like, why are you cutting the ends off? It's so wasteful. And the mom is like, that's how my mom made it. It makes it better. And she's like, but, but why? Let's ask grandma. And grandma's like, that's how my mom made it. So obviously great-grandma's long gone, but great-grandpa is alive. And they ask him, why did great-grandma cut the ends off the ham? And he's like, oh, so it would fit in the pan in our small oven. <laughs> <laughs> That's just it. That's so true. It's so real. <laughs> it takes this like bratty mind to be like, what the fuck is that? To like change the thinking and be like, that doesn't make sense. And and that's what we need more of. You know, that's why I love this generation. A lot of these like thinkers talking about, you know, non-binary, gender fluidity, you know, all these things that's like has always been there. And the denying of it creating violence and death everywhere. It's like, oh my God, please. You know? So thank God for the changes. And I want to be and continue to be a person who offers that because I got shown some things. <laughs> So I figure I'll just keep telling the stories and it helps, I think. But, you know, I think it it takes a lot of strength to be able to share those experiences too, you know, because it's like you have to be vulnerable to open up and be like, this is all of the trauma that I went through. Yeah, I was forced to, forced to learn how to get through vulnerability. I mean, when you have doctors and stuff like literally handling your boobs and being like, this one's got to go. It's like, you just, yeah. just got to like, you know, yeah. things change in you and you're like, okay, so what's really important for you? Yeah. Pizza that I'm going to order later on. Let me just get through this. You know? And then sometimes yeah. we're like, I still have ice cream in the fridge. You know what I mean? I love that. Just kind of like, you got to negotiate things and then you also have to own why you got to where you're, you're at if you can so every nutty experience I experienced I realized I played a part in that and and I own every cell of my cancer I don't say I was a victim to it or like the environment did it to me or whatever I made it from the inside out on the cellular level of course there are 
you know, factors that might speed it up and all the stuff, but it is still mine. And until I knew it was mine, could I then undo it? And I just put myself in that space to not, you know, cause I can't live in fear. I know me, if I live in fear, cause I used to, it got me sick. And I realized when I was diagnosed, ah, okay, this tells me that everything I did to this point led me here. So what are the things that immediately come to mind that I need to change? Cause my body knew you had this like lower level knowledge. That's like super wise that gets interrupted by what we see in internet and like Trump and you know, these things, but our inner wisdom of things, the thing that told me there was something wrong with me here on this side of my body, but I didn't know what it was. We all have that. So I just tell these stories because I want people to understand that like, God, you're so much wiser than you're told so much wiser than you admit and acknowledge. It's so powerful. Like all of these nutty things from using my breasts to like the, the appendix to my teeth, all of these things were also interconnected to things I hated about myself. I said I hated my teeth. I used to say I hate my breasts. I used to say I hate my belly. They literally imploded. And like, I think about it like that. And I used to say, well, I'm, I'm such a tough girl. I can handle anything throw it at me. Oh, I'm the phoenix rising from the fire. But then I realized like how many times did I throw this poor phoenix in, you know? And then I realized why I said, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. So what do I do? What do I focus on instead? And I focus on things like this, what we're doing now. You touched on um, being uh, officiating weddings as part of your package um, earlier. So yeah. I want to talk about that. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, so this is wild. So I was, uh, again, let's go back to that. I admitted that I have control issues. <laughs> so, and I'm also a trained TED public speaker coach. Ooh. So that means I am very secretly obnoxiously listening too closely to people delivering messages. <laughs> Not a secret anymore. Uh, so I was DJing a wedding and I was watching a friend efficient. No, actually it wasn't a friend. It was a, a professional efficient deliver the most uh, terrible <laughs> ceremony. And I just, was in the back of the space thinking it's so unfair because there are two individuals coming from these paths, meeting, uniting, creating the future. And then you're reading this thing that all these people have had read before. And I having a love for creator writing was like, I think I want to do this. I think I want to officiate weddings and write these ceremonies based on these people. But I didn't start to do that until I was considering getting ordained because that's also part of, part of the package. And as I was considering that in 2015, I had reached out to an organization called the Universal Brotherhood Movement, Interfaith, Every Faith, Just Open. They're located in Florida and a friend of mine who officiates through them said, they're perfect for you, just reach out and talk to them. So I told them, Hi, I was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, okay, so we're going to expedite your whole experience here. <laughs> and, and they did. So I had to create my congregation. I did it via podcast uh, on radio, Heritage Radio Network, and my radio congregation. I had a show called Primary Food. 
and I was living my expression as someone who wanted to help people as I was going through something very difficult. And I found like, I think I need to do this kind of work continually. Do I have to call myself forever, which I am, or just call myself DJ? And I realized the work is the same. Yeah. And then it's the same, you know, and I have been officiating weddings, have been reading out of, have you seen my book, my heart book? So in my hands right now is a big heart that opens up and I read my ceremonies from this big heart made of plastic flowers from Amazon.com. And I put my ceremony inside in these sheets, but that's not what's amazing. I have every couple sign the inside. It is so special. I remember the first one, which is up here and the whole thing was empty. And then before I knew it, people are calling me and saying, we really need you to do a wedding. I've had two couples change their wedding dates to accommodate my schedule, which really says a lot. Yeah. Thanks for asking me about that. You know, it's, it's very, it's very special, very dear to me. You know, I, I realized that this part book that I showed you becomes something like an heirloom that I get to pass to my niece. And I realized that that has some evidence of work that I've done in the life, you know. Um, so you're, is you, are you still working on your podcast? Primary Food, yes? Yeah. Can you talk to us about the name Primary Food and the idea yeah. of what that is? So Primary Food is a concept I learned in nutrition school, a holistic nutrition school called IIN. Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And it's a concept that if I didn't learn it prior to my cancer diagnosis, I think I would have been in a different place. Primary food is everything else in life that nourishes you before you eat. And that is great relationships, a great job, nourishing hobbies, a, a furry pet that you can pet. All those things that nourish you, they dictate how good your secondary food is. And adversely, when you have terrible primary food, like a crappy job, a terrible relationship, it reflects in the terrible secondary food you eat. And that's what the show was. The podcast was about that. I, had, I would have folks from restaurants and artists and musicians, everything, every type of job come on and talk about, okay, you know, what's your job and or what, what do you eat and what are the things that really nourish you? I love the idea of you being focused on primary food and also being the official DJ for Whole Foods. It's like that. <laughs> That's really cool. Can we? Can you tell us how you got your DJ name? How did you? How did Cherish the Love come about? So my first DJ name ugh, was D. <laughs> I don't tell. I don't tell anybody this, and I definitely wouldn't tell a podcast that would broadcast it. <laughs> my, my first DJ name was DJ Artista because I used to play music and paint on canvas at the same time because I can't just do one thing. <laughs> and I'd be painting and DJing, and people were like, that's a lot. <laughs> so one day I am volunteering for TEDx Teen, and I am sitting in the audience, the auditorium, and someone sits next to me, and it's the Jizza from Wu-Tang Clan. Oh, my God. And I was like, Casual. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Rap royalty sitting next to me. 
And he was there because he was presenting with his called Science Geniuses, his teens, a part of a program that he created, co-created, where young people learn about math and science via rap. It just like lands better. It's like vernacular and rhythm and cadence and all of that. And then they were on stage rapping about, you know, this is like before Hamilton. And, you know, it's just like, it was so cool. <clears throat> I was like, wow. So the teens were rehearsing and I was just sitting looking like, wow, and here I am DJing in these coffee shops for a penny. And I just felt like, I think I need to like be more public. So I'm looking at them being so impressed because they're young teens. And I turned to him, Wu-Tang, <laughs> and I asked him, hey, Jizza, do you ever get stage fright? And he turned and he looked at me like shocked, like that I asked that kind of question. And he was like, yeah, all the time. Aww. And I blew my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're chatting. I'm telling him I'm a volunteer and I, I you know, do this kind of work and I'm DJ and I tell him my name and we swap info. So I was like, let me DJ for your organization one day and so on. And the rehearsal ends. And I'm just like, I need to perform. I need to actually start performing and getting out there and doing things on stage. And I was like, I need to, like, I just need a, the right name. So I'm leaving and I'm like, okay, so what's my, what's my DJ name going to be? And as I say that in my head, he's waving by to me and says, cherish the love. And I was like, oh, my God, what just happened? And that's what happened. So I'm like, what a great experience that that just was like, I was like, what's my DJ name going to be? Cherish the love. And I was like, wow. Yes. So, and Cherish is my middle name. I was originally supposed to just be Cherish Maloran, named after the association song, because my mom loves music. That song, Cherish is the word I use to describe. That's what I'm named after. My mom is the type of person who, when I was born, my new uncle came to visit in the hospital and she's like, Welcome to the family. Why don't you name my child? Who does that? <laughs> That's what my mom did. And he picked Cynthia. And then my mom's beloved name for me got sidelined because my mom always marginalized herself. So my name became the middle name and I uh, became Cynthia. And in school, because I grew up in the early 80s and kids loved to find all the reasons to bully, they would bully me because Cool and the Gang Cherish and Madonna Cherish. And all they would do is go, ha ha, there's a song with your name and shove me. And as a kid, that was terrifying. So I'd cry, tell the teachers, please never say my middle name is Cherish. And I went home to my mom and I was like, I hate that you called me that. And my mom would say, I love that name. I was like, I hate it. Never use it. And then when, and I told you she had a stroke in my pleadings with God, I said, if she survives, I'll use it. And she survived and I brought it back and brought it to Facebook and I started using Cherish again. So back to Wu-Tang, <laughs> I go home and I'm like, this is my DJ name. So I go to Twitter and I'm like, oh my God, I'm changing my name. DJ Cherish the Love, L-O-V-E. Then I go to Instagram, DJ Cherish the Love. Oh, it's one letter too long. <laughs> L-O-V-E became L-U-V. And then it became my name, my brand, my everything. It's such a weak DJ name story. Great <laughs> <laughs> story. So awesome. Wild. So wild. That's what happened. 
I swear, not a lie. You're so great. Thank oh you my so God, much. We love you. <laughs> We're just over here fangirling. I'm gonna take what you just said. You're so great. Thank you so much. It's gonna be my new yes. every time someone calls. Be like, you're so great. Hi. <laughs> Anytime I text you, I want that to be the sound that comes. Yeah, yeah. That I don't know. <laughs> okay. I'll sample it. That'll be my new DJ. My new DJ drop. DJ, cherish love. You're so You're so great. Thank you. <laughs> last call. We have one more tour. It's the last call lightning round. The five, oh. the five questions we ask every guest on Drinking Like Ladies, the podcast. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. You're in a bar. You don't want to look at a menu. What's your go-to drink? My go-to drink is a Chenin Blanc. Does that make me bougie? It makes you smart. <laughs> it does. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if you could have a drink with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? I would love to have a drink with Maya Angelou. Oh, nice. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Desert Island drink. Just one thing for the rest of your life. What is it? Oh, I'm getting practical. I'm thinking airborne. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Don't, don't. It's just airborne. My airborne pills with some salt water. I was like, that will, for the rest of my life, I guess that'll be healthy. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love lots oh. of ice. Okay, espresso martini, Bailey's or no Bailey's? Bailey's, no. Bailey's scares me. (laughs) (laughs) You mean a shelf stable cream liqueur scares you? I know what about that. (laughs) When I was like a teen, I loved it. I think because I thought it was like alcoholic ice cream melted. Sure. It is. But then one day I poured a bottle and it was clumpy. Ew, uh, oh. I was scared. Oh, I was never the same. <laughs> I, 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 it was like I was like, yeah, Bailey's, let's do it. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, oh no. Gosh. I, and I could never touch it. I wonder again. if that bottle was from like the actual 70s when it was created by a marketing company. <laughs> First edition. It's a four, half the 40-year-old, uh, you know, dairy. No. <laughs> so no Baileys on espresso okay. martini. Okay. So, yeah, no okay, Baileys. We got it. We got it. <laughs> okay. And finally, what is your last call song? Oh, man. Oh, that's just so, so, so hard. But I'm going to go with something that I – recently performed and I recorded it two weeks ago. It's piano and some just like hip hop beats kind of a thing. And I'm going with that because I need to start respecting myself as a music creator and not just a music Player. That makes sense. 
healing. Um, I feel like Cherish has gained so much valuable wisdom and insight through her healing, and I'm just so grateful to her for sharing it with us here. Um, I have a teacher, a great teacher of mine that always says, the greater the wound, the greater the gift. And, you know, that can be really, really hard to hear when you're thinking about your deep wounds. But I think Cherish's story and her, like, insight about her own growth um, really exemplifies the growth that can come from from wounds and the, that teaching so perfectly. Yeah, I her message about the importance of self-love really resonated with me. I mean, how many of us have, you know, we constantly think negative thoughts about our body and that mm-hmm. that results in, in, in illness in so many cases. So I, that was something that really struck me as important. And I just love how she's an open book. She's so willing to share experiences for the benefit mm-hmm. of other people. Um, and she does it in such a loving way. So even though she does, she says she doesn't like people, I, I don't believe it for a minute. Don't buy it. <laughs> don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay so we'll be taking the next few months off as we start to work on season two of drinking like ladies listeners and when we return in the fall we'll be bringing you more interviews with amazing women doing incredible things if you've missed any of our earlier episodes go ahead and take a listen and if you miss us you can still find us on instagram and facebook at drinking like ladies If you like this episode or anything you've heard in season one, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, special thanks to our producer, Chris Voss, who makes us sound great. You can hear... (laughs) you can hear chris on the radio monday through friday from 2 to 7 on 99.5 wcrb boston's home for classical music he's the best until next time i'm misty and i'm kitty and this is drinking like ladies a spirit of rock podcast thanks for listening Bye.